Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello and welcome back. Uh, again, I do apologize for the quality of my voice this week. Better than last week, but it turns out those allergies I thought I had last week that, you know, kind of exacerbated by donating blood uh, turned out to be COVID. So <laughs> I've been isolating all week. Uh, but that means I've had lots of time to watch this episode. I think I watched it four times. This week, we are breaking down Little Prince, season one, episode 11. And this is the IMDb synopsis. Crockett thinks that a wealthy industrialist son nailed in a heroin bust could lead them to bigger connections in the supply network. So once again, we're opening up on the same B-roll we've seen the past two episodes of, I guess, like the seedier part of Miami. But this time, Gina and Trudy are walking down the street. Trudy has no shoes on. She looks really bad, kind of like shaking, shivering. And guess who comes to their rescue? young Giancarlo Esposito. He looks so good in this episode. Obviously, they kind of drew on some face tattoos. He has a little, what seems to be like a shark tooth earring. Definitely go check out in the gallery. I took, I think I want to say like three or four pictures and put them on the gallery. So handsome. What? You think I'm just going to walk this off? Easy. All right. Find somebody soon, all right? We're going to score, right? Tell me we're going to score. All right. Hey, my friends call me Santa Claus. Right? Like that voice, that delivery, like very different, obviously, from Gus Fring's, but just that presence. You could see it even here 20 years before Breaking Bad was even in our radar. So what a star. You know, it's always nice to see these famous guys on Miami Vice and kind of seeing how they've changed and how they've evolved and just ah, love it. So basically, Zito and Switek are doing surveillance on Gina and Trudy. Trudy's acting like she needs a fix of heroin. Luther, Santa Claus, is going to take them there. So Zito and Switek are going to follow suit. However, they end up losing the girls in the process because the van wouldn't start. They let Crockett and Tubbs know that they've lost the girls, Gina and Trudy. So Crockett and Tubbs go to one of Miami's most well-known junkies, and try to rough them up for a little bit of information. They're finally able to get the location of, I don't know what to properly call it. It's a house where everybody does heroin. Um, I remember it from Breaking Bad, speaking of Giancarlo Esposito. I just forget the actual term of it. It's really depressing and sad. It's not a place I'd ever want to go, but I just, rem- I don't want to say it's a smack house. I forget what it's called, but I will look this up. This will be one of my corrections for next week. And we can kind of tell from the energy that Gina and Trudy are a little bit nervous because um, they're going undercover, but they're getting a little too deep and a little bit too close to the fire in this next clip. I hope you're not going to speak ball. Had a problem with a damn guy last night. Blood all over the place. Hey, put this one on my tag. Hey, hey this pops on me. Yeah, Luther might dance, and Luther might choke, hey, but Luther's gonna get you well. The juxtaposition of Giancarlo Esposito as Luther, basically like luring this girl in, and basically indebting her to something that she has to pay off, which is never a good position to be in, with Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood in the background, chef's kiss. So I also mentioned the metaphorical fire of, you know, Gina and Trudy being a little bit too deep undercover, basically at the point where Luther is going to inject Trudy with heroin as we see him cooking it on the spoon and filling up the syringe. Just then, Gina and Trudy kind of make eyes, pull out their guns, pull out their badges, 
bust them. Crockton tubs swoop in kind of last minute and then <laughs> they're a little bit late. So what's Crockett's excuse? What took you so long? Stop for donuts. <laughs> That's genius. Just how like quick and fun, like what a good stereotype to play into. That was genius. So they're rounding everybody up. One guy jumps out of the window. Crockett runs to the bathroom. They're trying to find the fire escape. What they do see is very well-to-do yuppie kid with what looks like a crack pipe. If someone can educate me, I'm not saying this to basically bust anybody or snitch on anybody. I think it kind of looks like a crack pipe that he's holding. Maybe... um, Because heroin, I know you can smoke heroin, but I thought that you smoked heroin off of foil, that basically you burn the heroin on top of foil and then inhaled it through so you're not inhaling the tar heroin into your lungs directly. So I know you can also snort heroin. So I'm assuming this is a crack pipe. It's a very fancy crack pipe. Uh, Working in a bar, I have, (laughs) we just found in this month alone at work, Maybe in the last two months. I don't want to exaggerate. In the last two months, we have found two different crack pipes, one in the bathroom and one outside. So I'm actually, this is an ongoing process. I am forever learning. So I'm not sure if that's a crack pipe is basically what I meant to say. I will also make a fashion note. I really like Crockett's sport coat. Um, In the episode, it's, we see it a couple times in this episode. It seems to always change color. I can't tell if it's like a seafoam green, a green. I can't tell if it's a turquoise. I can't tell if it's a sky blue, but great cut. Looks great on Crockett. So the intro plays, we come back, we're back at the precinct, we're reading up a little bit on, you know, who kind of they got in the bus last night. The name that catches everybody's eye is this young yuppie's father. And Crockett seems to know more than anybody else, surprisingly. Mr. Wall Street Raider himself, number 387 on Forbes 400. Since when do you read Forbes, Crockett? When I'm at the dentist. Okay, that's a little bit dry. You know, Crockett's just not reading Cigarette and Gator Monthly. Like, Crockett can be a man of many interests. And reading Forbes, you do want to know what's going on in the world. I don't read Forbes, so. <laughs> I am I am the last person to judge Crockett. And so speaking of this guy, they're going to try to bring his kid in. They think that by bringing this kid in, they can get some information that will lead them to more drug dealers. Because with a client of his stature, more drug dealers are going to be inclined to want to be in his presence. You know, it's not, I hate to say this, some junkie off the street. This is a very rich kid who can get them to fancy parties. Drug dealers love to make house calls. Why not make it to a mansion instead of, you know, some trap house? So I get where they're going with this. Basically, they bring him in for questioning, kind of do good cop, bad cop. Basically, Crockett is being the bad cop, wants him to snitch and tell him where you know the other dealers are where he's getting the stuff and then this happens we're gonna drop the charges you got it in writing i can't give up my friends they're not your friends mark tubs is not wrong now my story is a lot different you know i've been sober from alcohol for 11 years but i talk to none of my party friends that I went out with, you know, obviously I had friends that I would go party with, but people that I just partied with, absolutely, absolutely not. Those people all drop you out of their lives. They don't want to deal with a party friend that gets sober. So it is true when you do get sober, you need to have a very strong sports system and get ready to have to rebuild your friend group from the bottoms up. So Tubbs is not wrong. 
However, that plan was not to be as a second after this kid is supposed to sign these papers, a lawyer barges into the room, springs him. Crockett, frustrated, asks why Tubbs is playing the good cop role. It was a nice touch playing the good cop routine. I wasn't playing. I've seen guys in the Bronx, Lower East Side, strung out, slammed down. They got a thousand and one reasons to want to escape. A thousand and one nights of learning the ropes. But the saddest thing is an uptown junkie. They're only into it because they hurt so much inside. got a feeling this kid can lead us to something. I think that's a very interesting point. And this episode could have been a lot deeper. And I'm not trying to harp on what the parameters were on network television in the 80s. But this euphoria-like episode would have been very different had Miami Vice been taking place today, is all I'll say. Because it does touch on a lot of great themes. And I think it just needs to go a little bit deeper. Um, so while they're talking to Castillo, Castillo basically wants Crockett to rattle this kid's cage and wants to, you know, basically make an appearance at where else but a polo match. That's pretty up there on wealthy white people sports. You have tennis, you have skiing, um, but I would like to say polo has to beat them all because number one, you need to have the money to maintain a horse. (laughs) They're not cheap turns out so it's just very much obviously i never went to a polo match in my life i have no idea of the rules i know of water polo we had a large hungarian population in toronto so water polo was a popular thing but i have no idea about actual polo so i'm very ignorant it looks beautiful though you just i guess you just get to watch rich people ride around on horses um michael mann doesn't have the best history with horses as we all know from his failed series luck that um, I think it was filmed at Santa Anita, which is also where multiple horses died in around 2019, 2020. So just a lot of bad vibes over there. Lots of great waspy outfits. Again, lots of pastels. Crockett is in not really beige. It's more like a yellowy beige. Trying to think of the proper color. I need to look at like a proper color wheel to get this color. Very soft beige yellow striped blazer. It looks very handsome, you know, very much playing the part, smoking a cigarette, watching the match. So as this wonder kid, as per my notes, so again, this is supposed to be a recreational drug user who is fit enough to play polo. Um, I'm aware that you're not running on your legs, but it does take a lot of body strength to maintain your composition on a horse. And then you're also bending down and hitting the ball. So it's not the most strenuous. He's not running a marathon here, but, you know, it still takes a lot of cardiovascular fortitude and stamina to play this game so basically this other guy kind of knocks him off his horse as the wonder kid is reaching down to get the ball and he has some sage advice training for life's hard falls watch your blind side the next time kiddo and so as we end the match wonder kid comes walking through with his horse i also made a gift of this because the horse kind of butts him from the back and kind of pushes him a little bit more into the scene than i think he's supposed to <laughs> horse gave zero f's that day so he's talking to a woman on the sidelines about his fall um she reaches out and touches his abdomen And then it turns out that she is the girlfriend of his father. 
that is not how I would interact with my boyfriend's adult son, putting it that way. You will see what I mean more on this episode. But then, of course, Crockett decides to come rattle his cage a little bit and introduces himself to the Wonder Kid and also to Mary Mac, as she is affectionately called, and his father. Their backstory, the Crockett says, they've met sailing, of course. This is also a funny note that I made. A quote. The guy who lectured him was his dad. Damn, cold. So obviously this kid has had a rough go of it the past couple days. He's been busted for doing heroin. Now he's actually doing heroin in his bathroom. You can see the tie. He's passed out on the floor. Mary Mack comes in to check on him, goes to his bedroom, goes to his bathroom where we see white shoes kicked off at the entranceway, which I thought was a very waspy, touching detail they added in there. The good white Notice how white this whole house is. That phrase, if you were the black sheep or are the black sheep in your family, you've probably heard that phrase, I thought you were over it, or I thought that phase was done. I thought you're not like that anymore. You probably heard that a million times growing up. So I'm just like rolling my eyes over here. Um, So basically, as he's lamenting how, how, how white the house is, he's saying that he needs color, hence why he's doing drugs. And his father comes home. Mary Mac goes down to see him. She's saying that he's just sleeping it off, which he is. And his father correctly guesses that he's stoned. But also stoned is a different way to put it. I wouldn't say. I would say hi when you're doing heroin. I don't think you're stoned. Um, Again, kind of like brushing off this kid and his problems. So if this dad wasn't enough of a stereotypical bad 80s rich dad... He is also a boss businessman, as you will see by this next scene. Please go to the gallery at viceneasypodcast.com because you have to see this. He is doing business outside with sunglasses, a blue sweater, a rotary phone. Again, this was a landline phone. This was before you could take those little headsets outside and have a conversation. This is a wired phone that's outside. Behind him, we have what appears to be a large body of water. I'm not sure if that's the ocean or the bay. Not sure where in Miami is, I'm gonna assume it's the ocean, and a sailboat behind him, and then this opulent white house to the other side. Like, it is, it is a look, L-U-W-K. And so while the father is lamenting all of his dumb, quote unquote, business partners and their shenanigans, he talks with his son and basically lets him know what the son's options are. I wanted you to know that Alan seems to think he can plead no contest and get you a suspended sentence. Sounds fine. With the proviso that you spend six months away at a drug rehabilitation center. It's like sending me to jail. No. Okay, also please go to the gallery because the son is wearing a button-down shirt that's opened with boxers and just kind of like staring back at his father. You just see his side, super muscular side profile, talking back to his dad. And yes, he does not want to go to rehab. The father basically says it'll be six months that he can still do polo in school. So I'm assuming he would be university age. I don't think this is, I don't think they're going to try to flex that he's high school. Um, Otherwise he would be in juvenile court. He wouldn't be dealing with vice. So even though he was 28 filming this in real life, because he does not look like a young college kid. I'll tell you that. But very handsome, very hunky. They have obviously dressed him appropriately. There is more 
softcore nudity in this episode as we continue. Now let's go back to the precinct. We get a little bit more info into Big Papa or Mark Sr. as he's more well known. And then I spot the package on the old man. The whole world has had him under glass. IRS, Swiss bank authorities, federal trade. Last year, he was under surveillance for inside trading, SEC. They had the whole thing. They had him surveilled. They had wire on him. And when Jorgensen got a hold of it, he took the entire commission to court for harassment and beat him. Wow. Yeah, wow indeed. Obviously, no surprise this super rich white guy is just very... um, proficient with the law. So this is a little bit of like, I don't want to say gossip, but basically there was this case, unsolved murder, double murder in Toronto of Barry and Honey Sherman. It, there's many layers. We have no idea who did it, but the consensus when this all came out was that Barry Sherman was known to be very, 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 very litigious. On the upside, he was also very generous with his money. Him and his wife were very well known as philanthropists, but very litigious. He would sue the pants off of anybody who crossed him. So hence why this is still an unsolved murder, because I think he just amassed so many enemies in his lifetime that people are not really willing to talk. And the way the bodies were found of him and his wife, it was kind of staged to look like a murder-suicide, but there was like, it's a very interesting case. I definitely go look it up, but you can tell that this guy made many enemies and spent a lot of time and a lot of money in court. So kind of reminded me of this guy where he was able to sue while being under surveillance for insider trading and win. Like, no wonder this guy thinks he's untouchable because he is. Oh, Tubbs also makes a reference, I made a note of this, to Robert Fesco. I don't know who that is. Um, I tried Googling it. Apparently, it's a guy who did launder a lot of money and was basically fled the U.S. and was living part-time in Costa Rica and part-time in Cuba. Sorry, just hit my microphone. Uh, because they did not have extradition treaties with the United States. And then he ended up being imprisoned in Cuba and then died. I think he was in prison for seven years, again, for fraud or money laundering or what have you, and then died. So um, I'm not really, don't really know his backstory. And then Tubbs ends this scene by saying, quote, just because he's money doesn't mean he's not dirty. Next scene, Tubbs is listening to a recording on this big, please go find it. It's like one of those big projector with the two reels. I can't even describe it. If you were born after 2005, you have to see this. So please go to viceandeasypodcast.com. Check out the gallery. Um, He's listening with a woman I've never heard before. I'm not sure where they were able to find this tap or this surveillance because it looks to be like it's in real time. It doesn't look to be like it was taped a month ago. It seems to be recent. Uh, So basically they're listening to the tape and they're trying to figure out where this quote unquote mysterious warehouse they're talking about is. Tubbs Quite a problem solver. I think I found a warehouse for the inventory. The van is delivering here now. I know that sound. I said I just wanted to know it's if a you train. to see it. Commuter train. Good work, Holmes. You narrowed things down a 60-mile stretch. Sounds like a church clock. Way in the background. That could be St. Charles. We never get her name, but she was also very smart to chime in with that. So able to more exactly pinpoint the possible location or at least the general vicinity where this warehouse is, Tubbs goes, asks Guy, 
wandering around there. If you've seen a warehouse nearby, then goes to have a conversation with the hot dog vendor with a very cute dog. I took a photo. It's obviously one of my fave five. And he's asking around, basically, you know, have you seen anyone make these deliveries, blah, 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 getting a little bit more information. And at the same time, he's trying to get information on the ground. Zito and Switek and Gina and Trudy are switching off doing surveillance. I took a lot of pictures because the room, obviously, when the boys are watching, is full of old pizza boxes with this bikini-laden girl on the wall. And then when Gina and Trudy come, Gina, like, folds up the poster very neatly. They're both dressed very pretty. Um, Trudy has these very cute, what looks to be glass pink earrings. And so they call it in. They finally see something. Zito and Switek go down on the ground and they act like they're getting out of the gym, even though Zito is smoking a cigar. They ambush the guards and basically, as the deal is going on inside, the vice squad is building up their presence outside. So as soon as the guy, not sure who he is, he, I thought it was Castillo at first because a very similar look, like dark mustache. He's a little bit older and a little bit taller than Castillo. He opens the door, finds Tubbs and about four different vice squad cars outside waiting for them. And guess who we recognize? Mary Mack as in Mark Sr.'s girlfriend. And so while this is going on, Crockett, where's Crockett in this? So Crockett has been talking to, I believe, a county clerk or maybe a city clerk, someone who's working in archives, who's able to dig in more information about businesses. They're trying to get more info on this company. We're holding company. Who owns that? A Bahamian company. How long can the string stretch? A long way. And it's true. So they're just dealing right now with a very short string of a holding company in Delaware and that holding company's parent company is in the Bahamas. However, once I've done compliance before, that string can stretch a long way. And by the time you're getting through the sixth and seventh holding company, Shell Corporation, and it's finally some like rich billionaire in Europe. Uh, Because I was working with banks, a lot of them just go back to the Rothschilds. So (laughs) as you could tell. So they've been busted. They still can't get any information on who actually owns this company. Crockett and the clerk are trying to call people. No one's picking up. Basically, she tells Crockett to try to go to the IRS. So Tubbs is driving Mary Mac home, tries to get a little bit info more, a little bit more information from her. However, she's not really having it. She's playing dumb, and she is a lady who's working for a very rich white businessman. So again, she's asking for a lawyer. She's not giving up anything. Lady, this is not a traffic ticket. What we're talking about is 150 kilos. That's some serious time. You better do yourself some good while you can. I don't know what you're talking about. Kilos? Packages? See, like I told you, she's trying to play very dumb and she doesn't want to say anything more until she gets a lawyer. Now, sorry, quick note. I meant... I just skipped ahead a little bit. So Tubbs had already kind of surveilled this warehouse, found a ton of keys. I want to give you a figure. They're saying that they found $5 million worth of cocaine wholesale, which means the street value back then would have been around $75 million in 1984. In 2022, that much cocaine would be worth $207 million on the street. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. 
So while Mary Mack is not saying one more word about her man, we cut to Mark Sr. at home in his office talking to one of his goons and one of his goons basically acting, you know, asking what's up. Mark Sr. gives this iconic answer in response. I lost $5 million. That's a problem. And so Mark Jr. comes home, sees his father. His father kind of lets him know what's going on and basically says that he doesn't want to help her and that no one would be on his side. And then, quote, banks are headed up by a bunch of old women. Um, I will tell you very much that is not the case. Especially now in 2022, that is still not the case. Historically, banks have been predominantly run by white men. Their boards have been run by white men. It's not really an industry dominated by quote-unquote old women. So I thought that was an interesting quote. Crockett, Tubbs, and Castillo are talking somewhere. They're on the precinct. They're outside. It looks to be another warehouse. Basically saying that she's not talking. She's not going to give him up but that he's definitely not going to be visiting her for conjugal visits and that basically he's just using her as a scapegoat. Then they get a call from Mark Jr. and head on down to the precinct where Mark Jr. is not really open to hearing the truth about his father. She's his middleman. That is not who she is. My father doesn't need to sell drugs. Why isn't he here to help Mary? Time to grow up, Mark. Open your eyes. I really wanted Tubbs to be the one to deliver it like this. For God's sake, why don't you open up your mind and your eyes? I want to use that clip as much as possible in every single episode that I can. (laughs) So on the way home from the police station, because Mark has come there to collect Mary because his dad is not doing anything about that. They're being driven home in a limousine by the goon that Mark Sr. was lamenting the fact that he lost $5 million to. So this guy is familiar. And so in the limo ride, she's basically confirming that his dad is making the right choice. She's not going to be staying at the house. She's going to be staying at her apartment to not make as any contact with her unless absolutely needed to basically keep their distance. He knows what he's doing. It's all for the best, really. May I drop you off first, Mr. Jorgensen? It's on the way. No. Yes, please do. Uh, so Mark Jr. knows what's up. Obviously, by him saying no, he wants her to be dropped off first. So unfortunately, surprise, surprise, as Mark Jr. is getting dropped off at the house, the limousine locks from the inside. I took a gif of this, of Mary looking sideways, and Mark Sr., like a true soap opera villain, staring out the second floor window as a limousine drives away from his house. As a surprise to nobody, the next scene is them underneath the bridge, as this has been called a suicide, basically in that Mary was pushed to her death, but it has been ruled a suicide, so they cannot prove that she was pushed. However, Crockett and Tubbs know who's really behind this and why she died. And then Crockett and Tubbs find out that the department basically brought in Mark Jr. to see her body and to see that this is what his father is capable of. And Crockett is pissed, justifiably so, in this next clip. The ends justify the means. Hey, take it easy, Sonny. I can't take it easy. Not when we keep screwing up people's lives. They screwed up. What? We can't get them on one thing, so we drive them to something else. Is that it? I didn't write the game plan, Sonny. They did. Yeah, that's really rough to basically use this kid and toy with his emotions like that. 
to try and implicate his father further when it's tricky because there doesn't seem to be any other method of getting more information from this guy. He is very wealthy and he's very smart and he knows how to hide his dealings. So I do really feel bad that this kid is basically used as emotional collateral. However, on a very superficial note, I do like that Crockett is in two different styles of stripes. They're basically um, a light background and darker stripes, kind of like gray and um, a little bit like brown, but they're at different angles. Like, so one is his shirt is horizontal stripes and then his blazer is vertical and he looks great and the sunglasses look great. So this is just me being shallow that they're very well dressed in this scene. So as if this kid hasn't gone through enough, Crockett and Tubbs are saying a lot without saying a lot in this next clip when they talk to Mark Jr. What do you want me to do? We want you to talk to your father. And by that, they want him to wear a wire. That's very tough. I know, obviously, his father is engaging in awful activity and killing innocent people in the process, but... I can't imagine having to make that decision of whether or not to wear a wire to implicate my father this wild. So he goes back to the house and the father's mood and tone has definitely changed in this next clip. As the father is kind of talking about his youth and this one instance of where his father caught him crying. I fell and cut my knee. My father hit me because I was crying. Jorgensen doesn't cry. I try to train you to that way of thinking. Make you into a Jorgensen, tougher and smarter. I guess that all I was really doing was doing what got done to me. Dad, I... You know, I always admired the way you fought it. Well, why didn't you ever tell me that? The way uh, you rebelled. Why didn't you tell me these things a long time ago? Oh, this is really hard because they are exploring the theme of generational trauma, which this is also before the word, the phrase generational trauma really became a thing, basically of just parents repeating the mistakes of their parents, because again, that was what was done to them. Um, They got beat. So you got beat. They got neglected. You got neglected. They weren't allowed to cry. You weren't allowed to cry Um, because it does take a lot to realize that those things are detrimental and that it's not just how it is and that it can be different. So I do give the father some credit for realizing, however, it's way too little too late. Your son's already has a drug problem. You've just killed your girlfriend in order to (laughs) protect your drug selling business. So I think he realizes that this is the end of the line And this is why he is so emotionally upfront with his son. And it really does hurt because these are the things you really want your parents to say. And unfortunately, it is incredibly hard if your parents are of that generation that really wasn't emotionally open, that didn't have these kind of discussions, that basically these are kind of the conversations you have that are very awkward when you actually have to confront your parents or confront your family on what had transpired through your childhood and why you are the way you are and you know why you do have addiction issues. And a lot of times these conversations happen on a deathbed. And in this case, it kind of pretty much is the proverbial deathbed for the father. 
And the father knows it. And finally, the father comes clean to the son. I killed her, Mark. I killed Mary. Since it is Miami Vice and is the 80s, that boop, 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 those were the buttons of the shirt that Mark Jr. has ripped open to show that he's wearing a wire. And we see the Vice Squad. Well, basically, we see Sonny and Tubbs come in with police officers to arrest the father. And this is actually really upsetting and sad that Mark Jr. is trying to stop them. He realizes that he doesn't want his father to go away. This is the only family he has. His mother's passed away. His, I don't want to say stepmother, but his father's girlfriend, who I am 95% certain that they've had, they've hooked up. Just a little too weird, their interactions. 100% she's hooked up with him. The father and the son. Very, very icky. So again, even though he's doing the right thing, he's basically, this is the end of his family. So I understand where his inner turmoil lies. However, despite him trying, he's held back by Sonny. His father is carted off and Crockett and Tubbs go back to the house what seems to be like the next day to try to talk to Mark Jr. Tubbs in perfect Spanish, I will say. Uh, basically asks the housekeeper if he's heard from him. The housekeeper says no, she hasn't. He's asked again, has he called? He hasn't called. And uh, Crockett and Tubbs basically theorize that he's never coming back. And they're also kind of conflicted as how this all played out. And you can tell in this next clip that they don't feel great about it. Tell me something, man. What we did today. Good routine police work. I'm afraid the kid's gonna end up OD'd somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe now he has a chance. And as they say this, the camera pans to Mark Jr. trying to hitch a ride on the side of the highway. Car pulls over, picks him up. He rides off. Where? Who knows? And that's the end of the episode. And I don't really have Vice tea. Like, I don't have any gossip, but I'm still going to play it. I'm still going to play the little sound effect. And I say that because we don't have anything scandalous, but we do have a lot of familiar faces. So Giancarlo Esposito, um, he's been in a lot of things. Obviously, we know him the best as Gus Franks in Breaking Bad. I did the Breaking Bad tour, so we got to go to Los Pollos Hermanos. Um, it's called Twisters, but like they serve, you know, like kind of just like chicken fingers and fries. And I thought that was really cool. I totally forgot that Giancarlo Esposito was in The Boys. So Mitchell Lichtenstein, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, let me double check. Mitchell Lichtenstein, he was Mark Jr. So he was actually 28 at the time of filming. And I took a picture of Mary Mack, because again, she's very cute, but I was like, they style her so old. And she's supposed to again, be the girlfriend of Mark Sr. But again, like I hypothesize, which I think I'm 100% right, if this were real, she has probably slept with Mark Jr. as well. <laughs> the, way, the way they interact is too weird. She's only 32 or 31. So it's just like... <laughs> The way the Miami Vice styled women in their 30s is just, I understand that was apropos of the time because we didn't have the same style. We couldn't be as youthful 
as we can now. Now women can be 50 with long hair and very fashionable up-to-date clothes, whereas back then it was kind of, you know, 50 year golden girl. And so it just, it always hurts me a little bit inside to see these women in their early 30s and how they're styled in Miami Vice because it just makes me feel a little bit worse about myself. So that is basically the extent of my Vice tea. I'm sorry that it was very mild this week. However, now it's time for... Now, there were a lot of great looks this episode. So my personal favorites, um, Luther, I just like, it was kind of like a brick red. I want to say it was his blouse, his shirt, um, tucked in with a cute little belt, kind of like a silver looking pants. I loved Trudy's undercover look. I also loved Tubbs's striped suit jacket with the white shirt underneath when he's listening to the recordings. I also love Crockett's sport jacket. It kind of comes on and off throughout the episode, different colors. A lot of great fashion this episode. Trudy's skirt. I took a picture of it. Trudy, when she's giving all the information about Mark Sr. in the precinct, she's wearing this like beautiful watercolor-esque skirt and it looks to be kind of like fish and other sea mammals on it. Really cool. And while Mark Jr. obviously is quite waspy, he just looked great in a lot of the colors he was in. Obviously, he's very hunky. So this is also why he's very minimally dressed when he's talking to his father about rehab and the slow unpopping the buttons of his shirt, revealing the wire. All great fashion moments. However, I don't always want to pick Crockett, but sometimes he just... So I'm going to make it equal this week. I think my best dressed, Crockett's possibly baby blue, possibly seafoam green, possibly sky blue sport jacket tied with Trudy's watercolor skirt. And we had three songs this week, only three, but two of them legit bangers. So obviously we opened up this episode with a remix of Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is always a great song, flawlessly used in the movie Zoolander. Always a banger when it comes on. Always love to hear it. I still think of the wedding singer where the guy's wearing Frankie Says Relax, like the shirts. Like, it was a very culturally significant song. But my number one song this episode, there's only three, so it's not as if I'm, like, conflicted here, is going to be Turn Up the Radio by Autograph because Turn Up the Radio by Autograph was on the Vice City V-Rock station. And the that opening song for Hot Tub Time Machine and now on Miami Vice. So basically the trifecta of 80s things that I absolutely love and can quote and can give you all the fun facts about, which is Vice City, Miami Vice, and Hot Tub Time Machine. And this song is in all three. Love it. Have to go with that. It's always a great song. Always puts me in a good mood. And Hot Tub Time Machine... I think it has aged well. I will still watch it. So one of my favorite movies. I have actually, I broke up with a boyfriend because of that movie and I regret nothing. That movie is exactly what I needed in 2010 as I was transitioning kind of in college. So I was in university. I'd failed a lot. I was uh, kind of got sober halfway through college. So obviously my first couple years, complete write-offs, like my first year of college, I got zero credits, zero, which actually saved me from being on academic probation because academic probation, you need to have, I think, two or three credits where you're failing to be put on academic probation. But because I got zero credits at all, I was spared that. So it actually kind of saved me. Um, so it was kind of at that time where I was becoming an alumni in my sorority. So I wasn't no longer going to be an active member. Um, 
just like a lot of lifestyle changes at that time. I was, you know, a little bit older. Uh, a lot of my friends had obviously graduated at that time when I was still in college and I was taking all these classes and just like super burnt out. I was always doing six classes a semester. I was able to basically, I think if my math is correct, I got 15 credits and you need 20 to graduate at University of Toronto. I got 15 credits in less than two years. Yeah, summer school, full credits. Like I was burnt out. So that movie kind of changed my life and changed my attitude, a lot of things. And 2010 was a very strong transitional year, but I regret nothing. I had the time of my life. I was partying. I got rid of Facebook. I, a lot of these really good things that I associate with the year 2010. And one of those is hot tub time machines. So I don't know if maybe it was just like the right time for me. And it's obviously about the eighties and looking back on the life you wish you had and how you can change it. So Highly recommend if you've not seen it, Hot Tub Time Machine. And then obviously number three is Tiny Demons by Todd Rundgren. That is the song that was playing when we saw Mark Jr. shooting a bathroom passed out, shooting up heroin in his bathroom passed out. Uh, good song. I wouldn't actively listen to it. Just also, I don't really like to listen to songs about getting sober. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to be one of those people I don't really like to define myself or like you know I know a lot of people they put in their bios it's like I don't really like to do that because people ask you really invasive questions or they want to get really close to you because they're also struggling and then once they don't go through the process and don't become sober they kind of just drop you and kind of don't want to be your friend anymore because they're embarrassed it's just it's a whole can of worms that i don't really like to open but i decided i'm telling people this on a podcast again i'm kind of anonymous on this um but the lyrics of the song listen to the sound let nothing disturb you you are in a place where nothing can hurt you and that's a very interesting way to put the feeling of when you're using of basically using it as a form of protection when it's hurting you and ruining your life in a way. And this is why people struggle with addiction is because they chase for that feeling where they don't feel, where you can turn off your emotions, where you don't have to actually deal with what you're going through. So sorry, Todd Rungren, I should give you a little bit more credit. I think the subject of the song is very important. It's just not going to be something in my repertoire. Um, we're obviously going to be jamming out to turn up the radio. Bye. <laughs> autograph and let's end this on a much happier note let's not talk about addiction anymore let's get to the fave five <laughs> i'm going over my notes i totally forgot to mention that this is my second fave five so number one obviously my number one fave five or top top fave five is the slow reveal opening up the shirt to reveal the wire to his father mark jr is taking that number one spot number two I don't know why I didn't mention this. So when they're interrogating Mark Jr., the first scene, Crockett is in coral with turquoise pants. Again, like I said, that sport jacket that I love. Can't really tell if it's turquoise, seafoam. It does match the pants. So in this scene, the pants look like the turquoise. And just you can't help but notice how tight Don Johnson's butt looks in these pants. So I made it easy. I pointed out with an arrow. And number three, I really wanted to make this number one, but I could not decide between the reveal of The Wire or Mark Sr. making business calls outside with the sailboat and the ocean in the background. It's just like so stereotypical 1980s businessman villain. I love it. I love, love, love it. 
Number four, I totally forgot to catch his name and the hot dog vendor mentions it. It's the hot dog, it's the hot dog vendor's dog. And he's basically like asking his dog, like, hey, where do we see who went to the warehouse last time? And just the dog is so cute. What a good little boy. And then Faye Five, number five, is Mark Sr. looking menacingly through the window as he's ordering the hit on Mary Mac. It's very, very good soap opera tropes in this episode. Love it. And now, personally, I'm saying this as a 30-something woman, I do like when Miami Vice kind of leans into those soap opera stereotypes because I like that they're having a little bit of fun with this. Uh, This episode, actually, I should have mentioned this beginning. As you can tell, I don't have brain fog, but still, I think I'm just under-socialized, so my brain's just kind of all over the place. Joel Cernow co-wrote this episode, and I can kind of see it. I can kind of see those, like male soap opera gaze things that he likes to interject into certain episodes of 24 that I very much appreciate in this episode. This episode, I know it's a little weak, but guess what? Guess what my next episodes are? Okay, next week is Milk Run. Then we have Golden Triangle Part 1 and 2. Then Smuggler's Blues. Then Rites of Passage. If you've already seen the series and you know these are all amazing episodes coming up. So if this episode was kind of meh, you skipped it, do not skip the next couple weeks because we are going to have a time with these episodes. If you like what you hear, don't forget you can rate and review me on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Everything helps. You can also find me on YouTube. You can leave nice comments for me on YouTube because I'm very surprised that I'm getting nice comments on YouTube. I thought it'd be a lot more toxic than it seems to be. So... That's always something fun. You can find me on all things social at Vice and Easy Podcast, and you can check out the website, check out the galleries at viceandeasypodcast.com. We will see you next week for Milk Run. So excited. And don't forget. Hey, man, Miami Wise is number one, your show.